So I have the real pleasure of introducing Dr. Pandya. Dr. Amit Pandya is a, is a professor in the Department of Dermatology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. He serves as director of the clinical studies section in the Department of Dermatology and director of the clinic for cutaneous lymphoproliferative disorders. He earned his Doctor of Medicine degree from UT Southwestern Medical School and completed residencies in internal medicine at Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas and in dermatology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Dr. Pena has a special interest in pigment, pigmentary disorders, autoimmune blistering skin disorders, cutaneous lymphomas, and the dermatologic manifestations of systemic diseases. His ongoing clinical research studies are in the diagnosis and treatment of these cutaneous disorders. So please help me welcome Dr. Amit Pandya. It's a pleasure for to the SDPA. I've always enjoyed speaking to the PA groups because this is a crowd that really wants to learn. I looked at your um, schedule and uh, this is the last day of a very intense schedule of one hour lectures. Um, I think by now your brains are probably fried as much as the deep fried bacon at the Texas State Fair. <laughs> so enjoy your Philadelphia steak sandwiches. And I think they're sprinkling 20 milligrams of Lipitor on the carrot cake uh, for your dessert. So uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. If you're not fried by now, welcome to the wonderful world of cutaneous lymphomas. So we're going to go over that over the next hour and hopefully have some time for uh, questions at the end. So um, let me grab my clicker here. Um, cutaneous lymphomas, you've heard that the great imitators are syphilis and lupus. Well, I would like to add cutaneous lymphoma. This is the one where you're in your dermatology office and you scratch your head and you say, well, it looks like psoriasis, but could it be CTCL? It looks like tinea, but could it be MF? It looks like eczema, but could it be MF? And that's because MF has so many different manifestations. I'm gonna to try to go over that with you uh, um, this afternoon. We have the uh, Clinic for Cutaneous Lymphoproliferative Disorders, and the reason we have so many people is because this disease typically takes three or four years for, to make a diagnosis. Patients say, doctor, how come it took so long for someone to find out I had cancer of the skin? I've been to three dermatologists, I've had all these biopsies, why did it take so long? And the reason is because it is very subtle in its initial manifestations. And I'm gonna to talk to you about some of the work we're trying to do to make the diagnosis early on. So we have residents, we have dermatopathologists that help us, and it's great to actually see the slide and see the patient at the same time to do that clinical pathologic correlation. That's why histopathology is such an important part of dermatologic training, so it separates us from plastic surgeons. We also have hematology, oncology that help us. We have a support group. These patients are upset. They think they're gonna die, and the fact is that 75% of them will live a normal life. It's one of the most important things I tell them. And so we have a support group, and the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation has support groups all over the United States uh, that can help these patients out. And we have our uh, support group leaders there and my wonderful nurse, Pat Kowalczyk. So how common is CTCL? 
Uh, well, they, they've done several epidemiologic uh, studies, and the annual incidence is 6.4 cases per million per year and increases um, every decade, seems to be increasing every decade. So in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we expect 30 or 40 people with CTCL every year, and most of them do end up in our clinic at UT Southwestern. It's more common in, in blacks than it is in whites, and unfortunately, they have a worse mortality. There are a lot of theories behind that, maybe the, because of genetics in, among African-Americans, uh, which is different from Caucasians. That may be one reason why it's more aggressive. The other reason might be because CTCL um, tends to occur in areas that are not exposed to the sun. You see, the sun actually kills off the lymphoma cells. And if you're African-American and you have a very good epidermal pigment, it protects the lymphoma cells from the effects of the sun. And so it's allowed to grow and grow and grow. And so many of our tumor stage patients, for example, are African-American. It's less common in um, Asians and Latinos. Uh, it's more common in males. And it seems to occur in the elder, uh, older patients. Now, I'm just going to talk about the ones that are in yellow, because those are the ones that you'll see most often in your, in your offices. But there are many different types of cutaneous lymphomas. And this is where the lymphoma centers come into play. And if you live close to a lymphoma center, you can take advantage of that uh, because they can help diagnose some of these more rare type of lymphomas, many of which are more aggressive than your standard mycosis fungoides. But I'll be talking about mycosis fungoides, folliculotropic MF, and Cesare syndrome, and uh, lymphomatoid papulosis, or LYP. <clears throat> B-cell lymphomas, I'm not going to discuss much uh, today because they're not as common and they tend to be not as aggressive. Usually B-cell lymphomas we can handle with radiation uh, interlesional type of uh, therapies. Um, but your biopsy, if, the, if you are suspecting a B-cell lymphoma, then the uh, pathologist will, will be able to do stains on that. And typically B-cell lymphomas uh, present as nodules and papules rather than scaly plaques on the skin. So how do you make uh, the diagnosis of uh, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma? Well, MF is the most common form of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Uh, the problem is that the early, early lesions are nonspecific, as a close resemblance to eczema, and several biopsies may be needed to establish the diagnosis. The average time from onset to definitive diagnosis is four to 10 years. And here you see a patient with a plaque, and if you had a patient just come in with a plaque like that, you might say, Hmm, is that numular dermatitis? Uh, but then you look more closely, you notice it's got a very sharp edge to it, as opposed to typical eczema, which has got an edge that kind of fades right into the skin. Um, and they're fixed. Doctor, this spot's been there exactly like this for six months. Eczema, numular dermatitis, usually doesn't do that. So it seems to be fixed. Now, to diagnose early MF, there's a new point system that's been developed, and I think this is helpful for us to understand what MF looks like. If you get four points, you got MF, and we have validated this. This is sensitive. It's not that specific, but it is sensitive. So um, this algorithm was developed, you can see, in 2005. So what are the basic criteria? The basic is persistent and or progressive patches and thin plaques. Persistent and or progressive. It's not the person who comes in and says, these things come and go, or it's only been there for three weeks. It's someone who says, this has been for th there for three months, and it just doesn't change, or it changes very slowly. 
What's the next one? Non-sun exposed location. So this is the bathing trunk or boxer short distribution most commonly involved. Size and shape variation, that's important. Uh, unlike guttate psoriasis, which tends to be just one size, or pityriasis rosea, which tends to be one size, MF, you have a size and shape variation. Poikiloderma, what does poikiloderma mean? It means you have hyper and hypopigmentation along with telangiectasias. And in patients with long-standing MF, when you look at their skin, you will see that. Some modeling of the pigmentation and little uh, blood vessels in there. So those are the things you look for. Histopathology, we look for several things, superficial lymphoid infiltrate, epidermotropism, atypia. These are the most simple things you can do. Examine the patient and do a regular biopsy, and in most cases, we can make the diagnosis from that. Sometimes we need to do some special studies. So the emphasis is on basic findings. What's your staging workup? Well, uh, you want to do your physical exam. You want to see what type of skin lesions are they. You want to document, are these patches, plaques, papules, tumors, nodules, ulcers? What do you see? And if only plaque uh, disease or erythrodermic uh, disease is there, you estimate the percent body surface area and you note any ulceration or lesion. Uh, do they have 10%, 20%, 40%, etc.? And the size of your hand is 1%. You can use that to determine the uh, body surface area. If your tumors are present, you want to determine the total number of tumors, the, the largest size lesion, the regions involved. And then you also want to feel for lymph nodes. If they have enlarged lymph nodes, and the definition of an enlarged lymph node is greater than 1.5 centimeter in diameter. And you want to check the supraclavicular, anterior cervical, posterior cervical, axillary, and inguinal areas. And if you feel enlarged lymph nodes, and if those lymph nodes persist for more than two months, um, then that lymph node needs to be biopsied. If that lymph node is involved with CTCL, it immediately shoots them up to stage four, and the prognosis is much, much lower. Very important, that lymph node exam in patients with cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. You also want to identify any organomegaly. It's rare that patients have organomegaly, feeling for a liver, feeling for a spleen, if they have any enlargement. You want to do a skin biopsy, and you want to pick the most indurated um, spot if there's only um, one biopsy. And then if you do suspect MF, write that down on your biopsy report, and the pathologist will do some of these stains to see, are these T cells or B cells, and do they have loss of certain markers that they'll look for. They also will look for a clone to see if you have a malignant clone in the skin. And I would caution you about that because if you get the report back saying this report showed a, showed a clone, remember that there are many benign diseases that will show a clone in the skin, such as contact dermatitis, lichen planus, pityriasis rosea, pityriasis lichenoides. There are many diseases that have clones in the skin. Clonality does not equal malignancy. It is just one part of the information set you're going to use to make a diagnosis of uh, CTCL. What blood test do you want to do? Well, certainly you want to do a CBC because if their white count is 20,000, they could have Cesare syndrome or leukemia. Um, you want to check liver function tests, and LDH is something that gives you an idea of a tumor burden. If you're not sure how much tumor cells they have in their body, we can follow LDHs. T-cell gene rearrangement to look for clones in the blood as well as the uh, skin, and looking for analysis of, uh, doing analyses for look, uh, looking for Cesare syndrome. Cesare syndrome is the leukemic form of mycosis fungoides. 
Uh, it's not that common. We follow about 15 patients at UT Southwestern. And these are patients who are red and scaly from head to toe. You feel their lymph nodes. You order the, the blood test called a flow cytometry, and they say this patient has leukemia. That's Cesare syndrome. And those patients usually only live for two and a half to five years after the diagnosis is made. Radiologic tests in patients with early stage disease, that would be less than 10% of body surface area, um, you really, who are otherwise healthy, you really don't need to get anything other than a chest X-ray. Patients who have more extensive disease, uh, especially if they have 40, 50, 60% body surface area covered, you may need to get a CT scan to check for lymph nodes uh, internally. Lymph node biopsy. Um, we don't want to get a needle biopsy of these lymph nodes. We want to see the whole lymph node. So if the lymph node is greater than a, ce a centimeter and a half in diameter, we ask the surgeon to actually remove the entire lymph node and we send it in for evaluation to see if the patient does have involvement of the lymph node because once again, that'll shoot them up to stage four. Most patients, it's negative, in which case they stay at the stage that they are. So what does CTCL look like? What are the clinical presentations? Well, it can look like many, many different things that you see there on the, on the uh, screen. Um, and I'm gonna go over some of these uh, with you with the actual case, cases that I'll show. As you can see, they can be patches, plaques, uh, nodules, tumors, ulcers, bullae, poikiloderma, alopecia. There can be follicles that are prominent, hyper, hypopigmentation, erythroderma, nodules underneath the skin, slack skin, so their skin actually looks like it's just hanging on them, and then palmoplantar keratoderma, the scaling of the palms and soles. So here's a patient with a plaque of, uh, seat of uh, MF on the skin. If it was a single plaque, I wouldn't blame you for just giving them a topical steroid because it looks like numular dermatitis and seeing them back after two months. That's very typical. I wouldn't blame you if you scraped it to see if it was a positive on a KOH because it kind of looked like it's, looks like it has an advancing edge over there. That would be fine. That would be a very reasonable thing to do. But suppose the patient comes back after two to three months, the topical steroid hasn't worked so well, and it's fixed, and it's just not changing, um, and usually they're asymptomatic. They don't itch. In that case, you might want to get a biopsy. Where would you biopsy this thing? You'd want to get the most thickened area. You don't want to get this area. You want to get the thicker areas because that's what's going to show the malignant infiltrate of the epidermis. Here's a patient who has some uh, larger lesions. And how do you tell the difference between this and urticaria or someone who's having a drug eruption? Again, it's the fixed nature. Doctor, these spots have been there for six months. They just don't change. They're always there. That tells you that there's something going on possibly um, uh, that would be uh, uh, consistent with MF. But initially, it can be very difficult to tell the difference between this and other disorders. Now here's a man who comes in, and I don't know if these lights can be turned down uh, a little bit, Justin, um, but you can see that he's got these little papules associated with these plaques. The plaques have clear areas in between. Here's a big plaque, here's a big plaque. It's not completely symmetrical, it's somewhat asymmetrical, and he's got papules that are associated with his follicles. This man has cutaneous T-cell lymphoma of the follicular mucinosis type. In other words, the malignant cells are going down the hair follicles, giving these papules. Here you see the follicular mucinosis uh, in a localized area. This man has the type of MF uh, showing hyperpigmentation. Remember I told you you can have hyper and hypopigmentation with MF. And this man has hypopigmentation here on the scalp with these plaques. 
fixed plaques. They just sit there. They stay there for a long time. So you want to get your biopsy from the edge over here and send it in with the description. Multiple hypopigmented raised plaques on the scalp. Rule out um, uh, MF and rule out other things that you might think of. Or if you might think this is a drug eruption or if you think this is follicular mucinosis or something else. This patient has a more advanced stage, and unfortunately, she has the follicular mucinosis type that is involving the head. These are usually older patients. It goes into the eyebrow. It destroys their eyebrows, destroys their scalp hairs, and it forms a tumor, and these patients usually don't do, do very well. You can see this patient has a fixed plaque on the back of her ear. Initially, somebody might just say, oh, this looks like a bug bite, and you're reacting to that, and that would be a reasonable thing to conclude. But suppose it stays for three months. Then you're obligated to biopsy it here or here and send it in to find out what's going on. This patient had one of the most subtle plaque, uh, patches I've ever seen. I mean, maybe from your seat, you can't even tell where this is. But she has this little subtle erythematous patch right there. She's the same person who had this lesion behind the ear. So at first, I just thought that she had one lesion be behind the ear, but then I stepped back and I looked at her more carefully and I saw this thing and we biopsied it and indeed it was patch stage mycosis fungoides. And she also developed, you can't see it right here, but she had a seborrheic keratosis here and she developed MF underneath the seborrheic keratosis. So I froze the SEBK twice, it kept coming back. Finally, I did a shave biopsy and the MF was underneath the SEBK. So you have to be a Sherlock Holmes and think about this and, uh, and really say, you know, what's going on over here? And if you're not sure, just get a biopsy. Sometimes multiple biopsies over time. This patient has a nodule of MF, and you can see it even has hyperpigmentation. And you might think, is this an amelanotic melanoma or melanoma that's regressed in the center? And certainly I wouldn't blame you for that, but this turned out to be a tumor of mycosis fungoides. This patient also has a large tumor on her nose due to cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Another patient who had the flat MF lesions and then he started developing these tumors. This can be quite concerning because this can signify the beginning of a more aggressive stage of his CTCL, where he's gone from stage one now to stage 2B, which has a much poorer prognosis. So you want to take a biopsy of this. You want to look him over carefully. In the, this case, we would get a CT scan to make sure he's not developing anything internally. Remember, patients with skin of color are going to have a lot of pigmentary changes. You can have hyperpigmentation and hypopigmentation. What's the differential diagnosis of this man? It would be sarcoidosis. It could be a drug eruption. It could be a lichenoid drug eruption. Mycosis fungoides. I wouldn't blame you for scraping the edge to look for tinea. Um, could it be that he's got treated psoriasis? All of these things come up in your mind when you see someone like this. Um, and your biopsy is going to be very helpful. This poor woman is an example of what I talked about. African Americans have a poor prognosis when it comes to cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. And she had a huge plaque on her back that uh, ended up going, uh, becoming more aggressive and she ended up uh, actually passing away of her lymphoma. Now, in patients with skin of color, you can have hypopigmented lesions. Now, this guy was treated uh, for what? What do you think he was treated for? Tinea versicolor, of course. You look at him. He goes to wet and wild, it doesn't tan, it all looks white. And I mean, there's a thousand teenagers at wet and wild with this type of trunk. But he doesn't have tinea versicolor. 
You treat them and it doesn't go away. You don't see that fine scale that's typical of tinea versicolor. You see that the edges are not completely sharp. The edges kind of fade into the skin. And the pattern, he doesn't have it just on his chest and the back, he has it on his flanks, he has some on his legs. That's not a good location for tinea versicolor. So you get a biopsy and you're surprised when it comes back as mycosis fungoides. This is a great imitator of many different diseases. Here's a close-up showing his hypopigmented patches of, of MF. A man who has the uh, nodules on the ear, uh, this can be very difficult to diagnose without a biopsy, of course, and then you can even get some cases inside the mouth. You can see a palate here with uh, uh, lymphoma um, in the mucous membrane. And this man had a single lesion, and it was a bug bite. He remembered the bug biting him, and uh, it bit him, and he had this nodule, but the bug bite didn't go away, and it had been there for three months. We biopsied it, and oftentimes these come back as a pseudolymphoma. Um, and if it's a pseudolymphoma, you can just do interlesional kenalog, maybe give him some doxycycline, and it usually goes away over time. But in this case, it was a true malignancy. It was a true lymphoma, but it was a solitary lesion. So we elected to treat him with radiation, and now five years later, it's never come back. So different ways you can treat patients with uh, solitary lesions. This patient has a much more aggressive form of cutaneous lymphoma, showing these erythematous plaques that are fixed, and uh, he had enlarged lymph nodes. Here's a young man who has um, cutaneous lymphoma, and it's hard to see in this picture, but his eyebrow is missing. It's really starting to go away. He's got a plaque here. He's got a plaque here, and his beard hair is missing. Now, when you see hair loss associated with cutaneous uh, T-cell lymphoma or MF, that worsens the prognosis. That, again, is the follicular mucinosis type, and it is thought that the prognosis of this disease is as bad as patients with tumor stage disease. So you want to treat these patients aggressively with both topical as well as systemic therapy. You can see the back of his neck. He's losing hair. He's getting these erythematous scaly plaques, and it is starting to spread over his body. So I jumped on this, I jumped on this case very aggressively. He's only 18 years old. Here you see some papules with some uh, scale on top, and the patient has maybe 20 of these. Does anybody have any idea what disease this is? This is a disease called lymphomatoid papulosis. Lymphomatoid papulosis can look like pleva or pityriasis lichenoides, but instead of having 100 lesions, they only have 20 or 30, and they leave scars. And LYP is a benign, a disease of T-cells, which is in the spectrum of cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, 10% of these people will develop um, uh, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Notice the scar there. That's one of the keys for LYP, is that they'll have scarring with this disease. Fortunately, this responds to methotrexate very well. And then here's what you don't like to see, is the more aggressive tumor stage mycosis fungoides. Here you see a huge tumor, which is ulcerating. Here you see a tumor on the eyelid. And these patients, of course, you have to treat with the oncologist. You have to have a friend oncologist who can help you with these cases. This patient was from the Caribbean. If you have a patient from the Caribbean, Central Africa, or Japan, uh, the Northern Pacific, you have to check for this unusual disease called HTLV1-associated uh, T-cell leukemia lymphoma. 
Um, there's a high incidence of HTLV-1 in these countries, and these patients may have this virus, and uh, when they develop this, they almost uniformly uh, do die. As you see here, he's got papules all over. He was from the Caribbean, and you know what he was referred in? Hand eczema. He first had this on his hands, and it was, he was sent to our contact dermatitis clinic for patch testing, and then after the biopsy was done, we saw lymphoma, and then all of this came up, and unfortunately, he ended up passing away uh, within a year. There's another man with a huge nodule on the, uh, on the cheek from a tumor stage mycosis fungoides. Another patient with a solitary nodule. If it's solitary, again, they usually have a good prognosis. If they have multiple nodules, it's a poor prognosis. Patient with a large nodule above the eye. Here's a patient who had plaque stage mycosis fungoides, but he was being treated with PUVA therapy, but his, he kept getting these red plaques. They were getting worse and worse and worse. And one thing I will uh, caution you about, if you're treating patients with vitiligo with PUVA or narrowband UVB, and you keep seeing their vitiligo getting red but not getting better and getting thick, back off on light, because this man actually had MF and vitiligo, and all of these areas that I thought were MF were actually vitiligo. As you see in this picture, you can see the Woods lamp picture, this man actually had vitiligo and MF. So remember, vitiligo will thicken up if you over-treat them with light therapy. So back off when you see that, and they'll get better. All right, histopathology. Uh, early CTCL may resemble other dermatoses, clinical and histopathologically. Uh, we look for these things called potriase microabscesses. And just to show you, here's where the cancer is. This is the cancer cell. This is not. This is the cancer cell. This is not. The cancer in MF is an epidermal cancer. We are very, very blessed in dermatology to deal with the lymphoma that loves the epidermis because we can kill it there. That's why 90% of these patients live a normal life. All of these cells down here are reacting to the cancer cells. They are normal immune system cells, immune CD, uh, CD4 positive T cells that are actually killing off the, the malignant cells. So that's great. This is only 0.1 millimeters thick. The epidermis is 0.1 millimeters thick. You can kill it with narrowband UVB, PUVA, nitrogen mustard, targretin. You can use many different things to kill off uh, these, uh, these malignant cells. <clears throat> now, here's one of the problems we have. A panel of seven dermatopathologists did not agree in over 50% of specimens reviewed as to whether they had CTCL. And up to 30% of readings were different when the same dermatopathologist was given the same specimen twice. In other words, they didn't even agree with themselves 30% of the time. It's, it, it really is frustrating and depressing when you read that. Um, so that's why you often need multiple biopsies to come up with the diagnosis and sometimes the gene rearrangement looking for clones, et cetera. So for an oncologist, the histologic diagnosis is the final diagnosis. He gets the PATH report, and he then embarks on chemotherapy. That's not the case for us in dermatology. When we get the PATH report, the PATH report may say, this looks like an ominous lymphoma, and yet you look at the patient, and it doesn't look that ominous. It looks fairly benign. And so you have to keep that in mind that many times things can look very aggressive on the skin, but it may only be one lesion. 
and you may be able to take care of it with something that's uh, fairly benign. So the histologic diagnosis is not the final diagnosis and cannot be used as a therapeutic guideline. You have to do clinical pathologic correlation. And just an example, here's a patient who came in. He had lymphomatoid papillosis on his buttock, and he was being treated very fine with uh, methotrexate. And then one day he came with this lesion on his thigh, and we biopsied it, and the pathologist said, this is a very aggressive lymphoma. It's showing a lot of aggressiveness uh, changes under the microscope. They sent his path to Pittsburgh, and they sent it to North Carolina, and all these experts looked at it and said, this is horrible. Well, by the time we got all the stuff back, we had treated him at his visit when we biopsied him with some Kenalog intralesional um, and continued his methotrexate. And when he came back in six weeks, it was totally gone. And this tells us that this was actually a large lesion of lymphomatoid papillosis, which was irregular. In other words, you don't treat the PATH report, you treat the patient. And the patient may have a, a different type of uh, 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 um, disease course than what the pathologist thinks. Okay, 72% of patients with cutaneous T-cell lymphomas have T1 or T2 disease. In other words, less than 10 or more than 10%, but no tumors, no erythroderma. <clears throat> If you look at overall survival, those with limited patch and plaque stage, actually the majority live a normal life. You can see the median survival was greater than 12 years. They had not even reached median survival when this study was done. In other words, they were all living. Tumors, it's only 3.2 years. Erythroderma, it's 4.6 years. Cesare syndrome, two and a half years. So very few people with limited patch and plaque stage CTCL die. The majority of the people who are coming into your office are gonna have limited patch and plaque stage disease. <clears throat> so in terms of lymph nodes, they classify them into LN1, LN2, LN3, and LN4. If the pathologist says they're LN1 and LN2, then they don't change their stage. If the pathologist says they're LN3 or LN4, they immediately go to stage 4. <clears throat> now stage 1A, uh, they had a 32-and-a-half-year retrospective study of 122 patients and the survival was similar to the normal population in the United States. They had not even reached median survival after 32.2 years. Only 9% progressed, only three patients died of disease, and they used total skin electron beam radiation, and the authors recommend nitrogen mustard for stage 1A cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Now, 40% of the patients with CTCL that would walk in your office have this stage of disease. And some of them have already bought their funeral plot when they come in to see me. Some of them already discussed things with their pastor and they're ready to, to, ready to write their eulogy. And one of the most important things I can tell them is this study results. You have a 91% chance of living a normal life, of not progressing. Only a 9% chance of progressing. And you can see only 3% died of the disease. So I tell my patients, if you remember one thing from this visit, remember this. And here you see the curve for the normal United States population, and then you see the other curve right on top of it. So these patients have a normal survival. What about those with generalized patch plaque T2 disease? What about those who have more than 10% involvement? You can see in this case, 24% progressed. 20% died of disease. Um, whether they have lymph nodes that were enlarged or not didn't seem to uh, affect long-term survival. Of course, if they were biopsied and they were positive, then that did affect. But this is just look, feeling the lymph nodes. And median survival was 11.7 years. So again, I tell my patients with T2 disease, 
which, comp which comprised another 30 to 40 percent of the patients, that you have an 80 percent chance, uh, 75 to 80 percent chance of living a normal life with treatment. Here you can see the curve for the CTCL patients survival, and then this is the curve for the United States general population. So it's lower. <clears throat> and this shows the difference between whether you have lymph nodes that are enlarged or not, or you don't have lymph nodes that are enlarged. It's, it's similar. Stage 2A is where you have enlargement of the lymph nodes and you have, uh, whether it's T1 or T2 disease, you can have more or less than 10%, but you can feel lymph nodes in, uh, on the patient. And uh, that's called stage 2A disease. Stage 2B disease is where the split occurs. Stage 1A, 1B, 2A over here, good survival. Stage 2A, 2B and above, poorer survival. And here's where you start seeing tumors. What's the definition of a tumor? This is a lesion that's more than 1 to 1.5 centimeters in diameter, and it's dome-shaped. You see how these are dome-shaped. That's tumor stage mycosis fungoides arising on, on some plaques. Stage 3 is erythrodermic, red and scaly from head to toe, as you see in this man. And interestingly, stage 3 has a better survival than stage 2B, and that's just the way that the staging system was done. Stage four is when you have lymph node involvement or involvement of your blood. Stage four A is without involvement of the blood. Stage four B is with involvement of the blood you see in this patient. Cesare syndrome is a combination of erythroderma, lymphadenopathy, itching, and more than 1,000 Cesare cells in the bloodstream. And that can be detected on something called a flow cytometry. And you can see, depending on the Cesare uh, count, your risk can be low, intermediate, or high. Here's a person with Cesare syndrome. Again, the median uh, lifespan after diagnosis of these patients is two and a half years. If you treat them with something called photophoresis, it's uh, five years. This was from 2007. We've now seen over 400 patients. You can see 73% of our patients are early stage, 1A, 1B, uh, and 2A, with the good prognosis. Now, careful, careful review of the clinical and histologic presentation often rules out CTCL in referred patients. Um, so one of the most important things I have to do is rule out CTCL and, and find out if they've got something else. So we have been able to find patients who were referred for CTCL because your biopsy showed possible MF, so they were sent to me, and then after talking to them, after following them over six months, we found out they actually had either a drug eruption, atopic dermatitis, lichen planus, lupus erythematosus, cutaneous lymphoid hyperplasia, which is also called a pseudolymphoma, pigmented purpuric dermatosis, and my most grateful patient who sent me Fruit of the Month Club for a year was Tinea Versicolor. <laughs> Boy, was he happy. You go to the lymphoma clinic and you're told you have Tinea Versicolor. Wow, that's great. All right, treatment. How do you treat these patients? Well, fortunately, the majority of these patients can be treated with topical therapy. I'm going to talk about the ones in yellow. There's a lot of other ones that can be used, but I'm mainly going to talk about the ones in yellow because this is what we as dermatologists usually feel comfortable in giving before they go on to the oncologist. Emollients. These patients have a defective barrier, especially the erythrodermic ones, 
And so they need to have emollients. The enemy of CTCL is infection. When a patient dies, they die of infection. They die of sepsis. So you want to make sure that their skin is not getting infected. So you want to give moisturizers and protectors, um, barriers um, <clears throat> alone. Uh, and uh, moisturizers are frequently used in management of erythrodermic, stage 1, uh, A, 1B, MF. Topical steroids are added in increasing potency as needed, mainly for the itching. Topical steroids are really not the best treatment if they've got widespread disease. If they've just got a few lesions, clobetasol actually does cause apoptosis of the lymphocyte. So you could use clobetasol for a while to try to treat their MF. Antibiotics, usually they have staph or strep, but they can have gram-negative organisms. Um, uh, good response rates are typically seen with antibiotics and topical steroids. The patients with Cesare syndrome with sepsis usually have hypothermia. You need to do cultures in these patients, and sometimes you need to give long-term antibiotics to patients who are erythrodermic. Potent topical steroids, there's been one study in which they treated 79 patients with clobetasol, and you can see the complete response rate for T1 patients was 63% but they had reversible depression of cortisol in 13%. In other words, they were slathering on so much clobetasol it was suppressing their adrenal gland. So what's the answer then? I would recommend that if a patient has less than 10% of their body surface area involved and they just have patches, not plaques, but patches where you cannot feel them, you can try clobetasol twice a day to the areas um, and that, that might work. You can see the complete response rate was 63%. Uh, they were treated, however, for nine months, so if they have it in the boxer short distribution, they can get stretch marks, they can get candida, they can get thinning, so you might want to use it one week on, one week off, or give them a little bit of a break in between. Topical nitrogen mustard. Nitrogen mustard used to cost $150 a pound, now it costs $1,000 a pound. Um, but it's very, very good for patients who live in small town Texas who cannot come into my office for light therapy. You can get an ointment or you can get a gel. A lot of compounding pharmacies will make the ointment. Uh, you can get a gel from certain pharmacies. Uh, you can see it's available in several different concentrations. Uh, I like to start out with the 0.01% gel. You've got the recipe right there on the left. That's what you write down when you send it into your local compounding pharmacy. And they just apply it at night. And they sleep in it overnight, or they can put it on during the day. Um, this should be coming out as an FDA-approved product next year. Uh, we just finished the uh, study showing that the gel was very effective. Complete response rate for stage 1A disease, 65%, 34% for stage B, uh, 1B, and it's similar whether you're using the liquid or ointment. Uh, but the median time to achieve complete response was 12 months, so it's 8 to 12 months. That's the big downside for nitrogen mustard. You hand them the jar or you hand them the prescription, and they're looking at 8 to 12 months to see the maximum improvement. On the other hand, light therapy is 2 to 3 months. So I, I do prefer light therapy if, if they have that option. Adverse reactions, they can get allergic hypersensitivity in about 20% of patients, 10 to 20% of patients, and you can decrease the frequency or, or you can mix it with Vaseline to reduce the hypersensitivity um, uh, from the nitrogen mustard. So here's a patient, lived in small town Texas, could not get to a light uh, treatment facility. You can see the backs of his legs before and after uh, treatment with the nitrogen mustard. 
he had almost complete coverage of his thighs and, and his calves here. Here he's clear except for a little bit of folliculitis there. He's still got a little bit there, but he's 90% better with nitrogen mustard, but it took a year. So if patients are willing to wait and be, be patient, um, it does work. Here's another patient. In six weeks, she was already doing better with nitrogen mustard ointment. PUVA. PUVA is used for uh, patients with early stage disease, 1A, 1B, and 2A. And uh, you all know how, how PUVA works. You take the medication, you get exposed uh, three times a week to UVA light. And if that doesn't work after a couple months, you can add acetretin. Uh, you can add a retinoid to their, um, their regimen, like soriatane. 82 patients, uh, with, uh, 80, I'm sorry, 82 patients, 83 in stage 1A or 1B, they cleared in three months. Remember I said nitrogen mustard, eight to 12 months, PUVA three months. That's one of the big advantages to PUVA. Um, and you can see follow-up, uh, the complete response was 65%. Uh, 51% uh, did relapse, so a lot of times these patients have to be given maintenance therapy afterwards uh, because only about 10 or 20% of MF patients are completely cured and you can stop therapy and they're completely cured. They all tend to get some recurrences, so you have to give maintenance therapy. Here's a great example of a patient who's got it on the hips and buttock, and you can see after just nine weeks he is completely clear and he's got a nice tan too from the, uh, from the PUVA. Another patient, uh, after one year, you can see he's just got some post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So PUVA, however, in patients with Fitzpatrick skin types 1 and 2 can very quickly develop a squamous cell carcinoma. Um, and that's one of the problems with this. It all, also can cause rosacea to flare. It's associated with puvalentigenes, actinokeratosis, melanoma, more than UVB. PUVA is more effective than narrowband UVB, especially for thicker lesions, but you got this problem. So here's a patient who did beautifully with PUVA, but she developed a squamous cell carcinoma on the lip that required a graft, and she developed a squamous cell carcinoma on the, on the calf. She was blue-eyed, light-skinned with MF, so we had to stop PUVA and switch to something else. So just a cautionary tale there. The other thing I will tell you is that PUVA is effective for folliculotropic MF. Those who have follicle MF where you've lost hair. Look at this guy has lost his leg hair and all that hair came back with, with PUVA. Because UVA penetrates down to the depth of the dermis, whereas UVB only penetrates just into the upper part of the dermis. Where does the hair live? At the very bottom of the dermis and the subcutaneous fat. You are not going to reach the bottom of the hair with UVB. Combine PUVA and interferon. If PUVA doesn't work by itself, you can add interferon, and you can see all these five patients achieve complete response in three months when you added interferon. Narrowband UVB, you can see these eight patients were treated. There was complete clearance in six patients uh, after nine weeks, and four patients had prolonged remissions. Um, and so I think narrowband UVB is good for patients with patch stage uh, disease, and that's what I use, number one, for most of my patients. Now next is bexeratine gel, or targretin gel. Uh, targretin gel is effective, but it causes irritation, so they have to apply it for, um, for about six months. It's like Retin-A applied uh, to the area, and then after six months, uh, you stop, and then usually the lesion is gone. And you can see that they applied it every other day at first, and then uh, once a day, and then twice a day. Usually patients cannot put it on for more than uh, twice a day. And you can see the response rate was 64% for stage 1A, 50% for 1B. 
Um, 25% responded by 61 days, but the median time to response was 142 days. So when you use Targretin gel, you can see before and after, it looks good. You can see that's just week eight, but it typically takes about six months. So you give them the prescription, they go to the pharmacy. If they don't have insurance, they'll actually pass out because the, um, the cost of this stuff is $1,400 for 60 grams. It's the second most expensive topical in America. And you're thinking, what's the most expensive topical in America, right? I, I was waiting for you. Uh, Panretin gel, which is used for Kaposi sarcoma, is $2,000 for 60 grams. So anyway, that stuff's expensive, but it does seem to work maybe for areas of small localized uh, uh, mycosis fungoides. I'm going to go on to oral bexeratine, which is Targretin, also expensive. This is a retinoid, which is much more effective than acetretin. But the problem is that it causes hypertriglyceridemia and central hypothyroidism. So I have become an endocrinologist now because I have to treat these patients with Lipitor and Tricor and Synthroid uh, along with the bexeratine. You start low and you go up slow. You can see the complete response or partial response in 54% of the patients. And we have to put these patients in a low-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, which in the state of Texas is very difficult. If you just drive around here, you will see how difficult that is, but uh, we, we just try to do our best. Puva plus bexeratine, the combination of retinoid plus light, has always been effective in dermatology, as well as in here. You can see these patients who were, had Cesare syndrome, they were on interferon. We, they were able to get complete response by starting the bexeratine with the Puva. Methotrexate um, is not used that much. You can see this report summarizes 69 patients who were treated with low-dose methotrexate. Um, and you can see in terms of the number of patients, it's mainly the T2 patients. Um, you can see that uh, uh, 20, uh, only 12% achieved complete response, 22 achieve partial response. And so I use methotrexate as my third, fourth, or fifth line therapy, 15 to 20 milligrams per week, as you would for psoriasis. Interferon alpha, I love this drug because it really works for MF, especially aggressive MF. Those patients you saw with tumors, that one patient you saw with all the tumors on the thighs, those red lumps, they all went away with interferon. It was amazing how well interferon works. Um, it can cause flu-like symptoms, it can cause depression, but we give it three times a week overnight. They take two leaves, they give themselves the injection, and they sleep through the flu-like symptoms. You can see the mean time to complete response was four months, and follow-up period 43.2 uh, months. Uh, they did get relapses after you stop, so you tend to have to just give them a maintenance therapy with the, with the interferon. Electron beam radiation, I like to use this for lesions that are localized or patients who have already been through five treatments and nothing's working. And we do whole body electron beam in those patients. Uh, particularly effective for thick plaques. The depth can be controlled so it doesn't go to the bone marrow. They don't get the radiation type of side effects. We usually give the treatments four days per week. They can have some side effects, but most of these patients actually do pretty well if you send them to a center that knows what they're doing. Even their hair loss comes back, and their hair actually comes back different. It's very interesting. Um, you can see that the T1, the complete response rate is 98%, T2 is 71%. Now they do have relapses, so you have to treat them with light therapy or nitrogen mustard after, after electron beam. I'm going to briefly mention Zolinza. This is a new agent you might hear about from, um, uh, from Merck. It's uh, one of the new HDAC inhibitors that have been coming out. 
Um, it's only approved for progressive, persistent, or recurrent disease that's failed two systemic treatments. And in terms of its efficacy, it really only had one out of 70 patients who went into complete remission. But it's the first of a new line of treatments you're going to be hearing about over the next uh, few years. You can see that, um, that uh, of 74 patients, 30% showed a response, but only one went into complete remission. And the cost is $7,400 per month, $60 a capsule. Finally, photophoresis is what you would use if you have systemic leukemic uh, lymphoma like Cesare syndrome. It's best for those with white counts less than 15,000. You perform it on two consecutive days every three to four weeks. You can add interferon or bexerotene, and you follow the patients with flow cytometry. So all my Cesare patients are getting photophoresis, and there are photophoresis centers all over the United States. If you have more advanced disease, you send them to the oncologist. They will tend to use some of these agents. But I want to caution you that if your oncologist insists on putting them on CHOP or multi-agent chemotherapy, that is an old way to do it of the 1970s. Nowadays, they treat them with single-agent chemotherapy, and they get the same type of response rate and with much lower toxicity. So single agent, methotrexate, etoposide, gemcitabine, some of these agents like chlorambucil um, uh, can be used. When they compared aggressive therapy with multi-agent um, uh, chemotherapy versus conservative therapy, there was no change in uh, mortality, no difference. Even with the eight cycles of chemotherapy, uh, there was no difference in survival. Therefore, multi-agent chemotherapy should not be given to patients with advanced cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And I have to remind my oncology colleagues about that all the time. So the last slide just tells you about the support group. Please tell your patients about support group. You may be a very friendly uh, a physician assistant who is giving them very good advice, and they may love you, but you don't have CTCL and you don't know how it feels to have CTCL. I don't know how it feels to have CTCL. It means all the world to them when they can talk to someone who actually has CTCL, especially if they've been living with it for 20 years. Can you imagine how you would feel if you were given the sentence of cancer and you spoke to someone who has living a productive life for 20 years with it? That's what the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation does. The, the head Judy Jones is an angel. She has CTCL. She's been living with this for 20 years. She will speak to your patients. She will assure them. She'll help them get the care they need, and she'll support them. I'll stop right there, and I thank you for your attention. Could you thank comment you. on the questions? Uh, could you comment on the follow-up uh, phase of this? They're, they're in the plaque stage. You clear them with topicals and phototherapy. What's your annual follow-up after they're clear? Okay. So if they have the, the stage 1A disease, less than 10% body surface area, and you start them, let's say, on nitrogen mustard, you know that this is going to be a long course. You know that they're not going to achieve complete remission for 8 to 12 months. But you also want to catch them to see if they are one of the 20% who have um, an allergy to it. So in those patients, you see them after two months. Um, but you tell them, call me if you start developing an itchy rash everywhere you apply it. In those on phototherapy, I usually will see those patients every two months as well. And those are going to be the majority of patients, phototherapy as well as topical nitrogen mustard. And then once they're clear, one year, two year out, mm -hmm. what's your Once they're doctor? clear, then it's very, it, it, only 20, 25% of patients actually stay clear with no treatment. So the majority are going to have something coming up. 
So I will see them every six months, so once they're totally clear. If, I, if they actually stay clear as I taper them off light, and I have them completely off light, or completely off nitrogen mustard, and you know, mind you, this may take a year or two to completely get them off everything, then I'll see them every six months for the first couple of years. And if they don't get anything, I will say congratulations, you're one of the 25%, hasta la vista, have a good life. Thank you. For those of us who have derm path off-site, can you describe how best to send the biopsy in for gene rearrangement studies? Okay, so What's the question the is, if you have derm path on-site, how do you send for gene? I'm sorry? Off-site, off-site, okay, not on-site, off-site. So, um, first of all, you have to make sure you're dealing with a dermatopathologist and not a pathologist, but someone who has derm path training. And what you do, you can start by just putting down in your, um, in your, uh, uh, on your sheet that you are suspecting mycosis fungoides. And then when you get the result back, usually they will not have done gene rearrangements that first round. And so when you get the result back, it'll say possible mycosis fungoides or something like that. And in that case, you should pick up the phone and talk to that dermatopathologist and say, look, I feel 50%, 80%, 90% confidence uh, that this is MF. What can you do to help sort that out with your stains? They are going to be reluctant to do all of those stains on everybody that says rule out MF. They will do those stains on ones where you have either given them a really high suspicion by talking to them, or where they see under the microscope that it really looks like MF. In that case, they will get some of those immunoperoxidase stainings, stains to look for, the things I talked about, loss of CD7 and mismatch of CD4, and then the gene rearrangement they will get as well. Do we put the specimen in formaldehyde or saline, or how do we get it there? As oh, the you, just put it in, you just put it in uh, regular formalin. That's okay. all you need to do. The only time you have to put it in saline and send fresh tissue is if you want to do flow cytometry of the fresh tissue, and uh, we do that sometimes in our patients, especially with B-cell B lymphoma. I have an 80-year-old gentleman. He's African-American. Presented to my practice where he's just moved to the area from Washington, D.C., and he told me, I have a whole body melanoma. I've been in experimental studies for 30 years, and they've irradiated all my body except the top of my head about that big. And he was covered with what looked like mycosis fungoides that I thought was actually tumor stage. It was very thick plaque. And biopsy, my local pathologist thought it had already become anaplastic and was a different entity. But dermatopathology said, no, he doesn't have quite enough cytotic, you know, cells in these places to do that. He's had a workup by oncology and sort of got lost in the follow-up because he's got some kidney disease and other issues. And I had only given him some clobetasol until I got an answer. I had no medical history on paper except what he had told me, and I had no biopsies at that point. I just saw him back. He looks much better with clobetasol, although plaques are still there. They're much thinner. Where do we go from here? I don't even know what experimental studies he's had. I did get records that shows year after year after year he kept having this and it would flare and somebody would treat him and I know he did have the radiation, but I just have study numbers. You know, I don't even know what agents he was tried with. Well, first of all, the majority of patients who have radiation, it will come back. So if he did not have adequate post-radiation treatment for his uh, dermatitis, then I'm not surprised that it's back. 
Um, I think that sometimes we have to distinguish between MF and contact dermatitis, and sometimes patients are applying things on themselves that they're allergic to, and maybe that clobetasol helped that part. I don't think the clobetasol is going to be the answer, as obviously you don't, uh, for this if it's MF. So I think you need to have some, uh, this is the type of patient that's good to bring to a conference where they can actually bring the slides uh, uh, to the conference, bring the patient, and you can do a clinical pathologic correlation. The other thing that I would do since he's total body is I would get a CT scan with contrast and find out if he's got lymph nodes internally. He's already had that workup by oncology who found clean bone marrow and clean CT scans by their reports to me but he did not present back to oncology. He's been back to me once. Okay. The difficulty in getting him to go to a center is he can barely make it to my office. I he see. struggles with a lot well, of Well, if, if oncology has a negative bone marrow and negative uh, CT scan, I would still check his blood on a for a flow cytometry to make sure he doesn't have anything in his blood uh, for, uh, with, uh, that's, that's, that's a malignancy. And if all of that's clean and he's still really covered with this scale from head to toe, then I think you need to do recurrent biopsies, maybe every month until you actually have a, a good answer as to what he has. And he may want to leave off the clobetasol for two weeks in, in an area, and you might want to biopsy that area again. Because sometimes it takes three, four biopsies just to get the right answer and calling that dermatopathologist. And he might be able to do gene rearrangement studies. He might be able to do some of those immunoperoxidase stains to help you out. What would you do with treatment? I mean, he's, he's CTCL. What do you do with treatment now? I mean, I'm just supposed to continue biopsy and not treat? Oh, you, so he is CTCL for sure? Oh, absolutely. Okay, I'm they sorry. Just, I never, it's not anaplastic. I never got it's, that. It's not as bad as it looks, apparently. If he's elderly and he's not able to tolerate, uh, you know, some more aggressive treatments, you could start by just using methotrexate. Methotrexate can work for people with erythrodermic CTCL. Uh, the other thing you could do is uh, give him nitrogen mustard, although that may be very expensive for him. Uh, interferon works very well in these patients if he can handle that, those injections three times a week. Uh, and then finally, Targretin uh, can be used if he can afford that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It was rather conspicuous that you didn't mention imiquimod. <laughs> which is a little bit surprising since it's used for everything else, but also because right. it promotes the production of interferon, interferon in, the, in the tissues. Right. So why is it not effective and has it ever been tried? Well, imiquimod, I guess some of the challenges with imiquimod, it does induce interferon and it does, which you would think would work for CTCL. And there have been some very small case series with imiquimod um, showing that it did help CTCL. The problem is that CTCL is a body-wide condition. If you actually took patients even with localized disease and you measured their blood, you could find malignant cells in their blood. And as you know, imiquimod comes in those little sachets that cover you know, the size of your hand. And so you could try to treat one or two areas, but many of these patients have subtle areas that you cannot even see until you put nitrogen mustard all over their body or you treat them with light and then all of a sudden two or three other spots will come up. Having said that, I will tell you that Graceway Pharmaceuticals does have some imiquimod-like molecules that they are looking at to start studying actually very soon for CTCL. Thank you, Dr. Pandia, for your lecture. I had a question in regards to um, the localized lesions. And um, when we're counseling patients about treatment options, in particular about the electron beam radiation, what do we tell them about increased risk of skin cancer? With, ele with electron beam? Yes. Is that Amanda? Yes. Oh, hey, Amanda. Hi. Um, 
<laughs> Electron beam radiation, uh, really the risk of skin cancer afterwards is, is not that high. It's very low. It's not like some of the more heavy orthovoltage radiation that people have had in the past. However, if the patient is like a type 1 patient who has lots of actinic damage and freckles and, and such, those patients will get a higher chance of getting squamous cell carcinoma with electron beam. But the majority of patients uh, really don't have that much of a, of a problem with it because it's given in such small doses over a, a long period of time. And we are fortunate in Dallas that we have two places that can give total skin electron beam radiation. Okay, thank you very much.